Hello, I'm Abby, and this is Teach Medieval. On today's episode, I am incredibly excited to be welcoming Dr. James Ross. Hello, James. Hello. James is also the author of several superb texts, including Henry VI, A Good, Simple and Innocent Man, a book which has proved utterly invaluable to me in my teaching of the Wars of Roses, and an incredible biography of the fascinating John Devere, 13th Earl of Oxford, the foremost man in the kingdom, which I just simply cannot recommend enough. Right, so before we begin, I just want to make it clear that this particular podcast is actually the third in a mini-series all about Kay's Rebellion. So please make sure you have listened to the first couple of episodes in order to get the full picture. Now that we've got that bit out of the way, let's start. lucky to have access to direct evidence of the grievances Caden and his followers put forward. We have surviving copies of their manifestos, and in one of his first, Cade claims that many false counsellors around the king have been enriching themselves at the king's expense. James, do we actually have any evidence of that in the southeast? Um, yes, in, in, in short. Um, it, it is, again, it's worth pointing out that um, at almost any period, people around the king are going to be more or less subtly you know taking bribes um equivalent of brown paper envelopes um some of it a bit more legitimate that they you know they argue that they're serving the king and therefore they deserve a certain level of reward for for, for undertaking those jobs um so that happens at every period it appears to have been a bit more blatant um during during the 1440s in particular um it might not have caused comment in the way that it did if foreign policy had been going well and the war in France had been you know had been going swimmingly um but because it isn't these things are, are picked up on on considerably more so um Suffolk himself is one of those people who it's absolutely clear um makes a great deal of money from being the king's leading minister um there's been a sort of work much more sympathetic towards Suffolk, but even perhaps the most sympathetic historian said the way he enriched himself was indiscreet. Um, uh, and, you know, that's that sort of captures the sense of it. Um, so he gets a whole range of grants worth, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of pounds um, from the crown. Um, he gets licensed to export something like 2,000 sacks of wool without paying any customs duties on it, which would be worth um, over £3,000 at a time when the crown's total income is probably less than 50000 You can You get a sense of how much that, 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 might, be, um, that might be worth. So Suffolk himself um, makes a lot of money, and this is one of the things that the Commons pick up on um, in, in 1449, 1415 in, in Parliament and make a great deal of. Um, he's not the only one 
so the Bishop of Salisbury, um, William Aiskoff, who's Henry VI's confessor, very close um, to to the king. Um, he's actually he's murdered um, by rebels in Wiltshire in, in in late June, but he's said to have been carrying about four thousand pounds with him. You know, again, a huge amount of money, far more about twice the annual income of his bishopric. He's you know he's rolling in cash, it, or so it appears. Um, we know that there are increasing numbers of grants um, to household servants. Um, they they sort of double between 1444 and 1446. Um, you know, you can trace them in, in, in the king's grants so that the people around the king are, are, are able to ask the king for things and get it. And more and more seem to be taking advantage. It might not have changed the overall financial situation. The crown's broke for other reasons, too. But it clearly looks like this is making it worse. And there's nothing more irritating for people than thinking lots of people are getting rich quick at the expense of you know the crown or or or, or the government so it, it, i think it does make a difference and there are there are examples of this brilliant um how about the claims that false councillors had been hijacking the law courts for their own benefit is there evidence of this yes there is um it is also worth pointing out that this happens um throughout the later middle ages there that there is no period when influential powerful people don't attempt to more or less subtly influence the you know the course of of, of a legal dispute um again perhaps it's a little bit worse at at this period and and more obvious in places um so suffolk again um his it's it's a lot of his servants in east anglia who get a really bad reputation and um, the Paston family, who are very famous for having a, a wonderful sort of letter collection, um, uh, Margaret Paston says in I think 1449 that, that no one can challenge the Duke of Suffolk's affinity in in the region. Um, there's examples of Suffolk himself making decisions to to um, interfere in particular cases. So um william tailboys um he's a lincolnshire gentleman attacks lord cromwell for his own personal reasons but suffolk and cromwell don't get on and suffolk seems to have protected tailboys from from prosecution um uh for, for for this sort of assault and and again that's one of the things that's brought up in um in the parliamentary indictment of suffolk um there are also examples of, of of lower level corruption and extortion in the in, you know sort of in, in legal context um, from some of these people I mentioned right at the beginning Stephen Slegg and William Cromer um, in um, in Kent itself um, which is perhaps something that, that the manifestos pick up on um, but it it's hard to say how much worse it was at that time it probably is a little bit worse. The perception is that it's much worse, and I, I, it might be a little bit of an exaggeration. But again, it's the idea that some people are getting rich quick and exploiting the exploiting the situation. Um, all of these things build up into a you know sort of popular outrage, um, and and it it, you know, it feeds the fire. Yeah, and I'm sure this the answer for this will be quite similar. But do we have any evidence that these false counselors are preventing nobles that are closely related to the king? from kind of stepping in or acting as his closer counsellor. 
to some extent that, that that's true you you can you can overstate the cases as well it what i find very interesting about this is it's it's a really um conservative view of, of of how government should work and this is coming from the ordinary people they want the really big nobles to be close to the king and advising the king um partly because they've often got royal blood but there's a there's an assumption that the great nobles are so rich already that they won't need to take backhanders and bribes and enrich themselves at the crown's expense. Um, the the idea is that the, that lesser men, um, uh, you know, men on the make, will enrich themselves. Um, so it's a very sort of touchingly conservative view of of, of how things should work. Um, but yes, there are examples of of great nobles perhaps lacking influence or. Um, the the most obvious one and and this is sort of much more high political was um the duke of gloucester so uh, indeed heir to the throne um who's been a vocal opponent of, of the court's regime and he is um arrested um in 1447 and either dies very shortly afterwards in prison or is quietly bumped off in prison but um someone who you know who um stood up for a, for a bit of a more of a popular viewpoint and and is, and is clearly um, removed one way or the other. Duke of Norfolk is someone else who occasionally gets mentioned. He's been sidelined in his local area by Suffolk. York, um, the Duke of York, is is the really interesting one here. He, of course, had been in France for a long time, from between 1440 and 1445, and that's a very honourable post. He's running, you know, he's running France. I think he expected that to be renewed in 1445 and it wasn't and he sort of leaves office in in a bit of a cloud. There's no evidence he's entirely excluded from government and as I say Suffolk's government seems to have, a, have had a bit more general acceptance amongst the elites than than you might imagine. Um, but York then, he's appointed Lieutenant of Ireland in 1446. He doesn't leave for Ireland until 1449. Um, so he's not exiled out there, but I think that's the point at which a number of people think the situation is looking pretty dodgy in France. Um, I might just gently absent myself um, while you know while the storm's about to happen. So York leaves for forty uh, in forty forty nine for Ireland, spends a, a year out there, but it's perhaps only in that last year or so before Suffolk's fall that that the great nobility are, are less obvious in their participation but there's also a difference between participating occasionally in government and actually having real influence who are the ones Cade keeps saying are you know, evil counsellors and uh, those are the people who seem to have you know, more influence than perhaps they should and it does seem that Henry's very suggestible that you know it's the person who's tying his shoes laces in the morning who who perhaps has as much influence as a great duke because Henry listens to whoever is around him. So personal access to the king is really important. And even if a great magnate is occasionally around, it doesn't mean he's, he's as influential as you, as you might have expected at this time. James, thank you so much for that brilliant overview of the grievances put forward by Cade and his followers. You're welcome. So that's it. I'll see you and James in the next episode in which we'll be looking at the reaction and action of Henry VI to the rebellion. I've been Abby and this is Teach Medieval.